Michael Ostrolink here with Russ Green. He is Director of Government Relations and Research at CrossFit. How are you doing, Russ? Doing great. Thanks for having me here, Mike. It's uh, great to have you here. Uh, you all have been doing some amazing work at uh, on public policy, uh, state and federal level. Explain to us why there is a need, actually, for CrossFit to actually have to do work at the state and federal level uh, to protect the interest of a consumer, the citizen, uh, CrossFit itself. Yes. Uh, well, in an ideal world, I wouldn't exist. Or, or rather, my... <laughs> No, to be more specific, my position would not exist. <laughs> you know, we would just have our, you know, CrossFit. For those who don't know, CrossFit has a kind of a unique business model. We've got 14,000 affiliates, but they're all independently owned businesses, and we exert very little uh, coercive control over them. You know, we have some hard and fast rules, but beyond that, they set their own hours. They design their own business models, their own prices, their own locations. We don't tell them, hey, you can open here but not there, or you have to charge X but not Y. Um, so our job then as HQ is to um, provide uniquely attractive opportunities, in the words of Greg Glassman, our founder, to those affiliates. In other words, we represent their interests. So that's a long way of saying, or, or of getting to the point that um, the reason we have to have a policy person, a government relations person, is that um, the competitors of those 14,000 gyms have lobbied for laws that would put those 14,000 gyms at a competitive disadvantage, if not make their business model just outright illegal. And uh, we had to stop that from happening, and uh, we're still fighting against uh, various forms of such laws. And I must point out, successfully yeah. so, yeah. can you give us some examples of some of your adversaries' attempts to use the state to uh, limit CrossFit's ability to exist, let alone grow? Yes. Y you know, our experience, I think, is, is like most disruptive startups. You know, we, we came in in, in 2003. Uh, There's only one CrossFit gym or two CrossFit gyms back then, and now we have 14,000 and uh, the incumbents responded by lobbying for uh, something called occupational licensure. And what that is, is it, these are laws that make it illegal for anyone in a state to practice a profession unless they have particular um, state-sponsored or state-accepted uh, credentials and that they usually that they pay a fee to the, to the government and uh, register or uh, pay for a license with the government. So in other words, what happened, um, so to cut to the chase, what happened in D.C. is the D.C. government passed a law, the first law of its kind in the nation, that um, would have required a government license for personal trainers. So when I say D.C., I don't mean like Congress, I mean the D.C. City Council. And uh, that happened in uh, 2014, and uh, it, we didn't find out about it until months later. There was no press coverage. It. Sorry, I had to move my umbrella. <laughs> so um, I was living in San Diego at the time. I had to move here, uh, and we hired a lobbying firm. And um, basically what happened is we told the whole CrossFit community in the area what was going on, and we created a website in conjunction with our lobbying firm uh, at the Podesta Group. Uh, that enabled our community, that is, the owners of our gyms and their clients, to tell the D.C. Council uh, what they thought 
about this legislation. And um, I think the DC Council members received more emails than they'd ever received in their entire <laughs> lives. We had multiple comments and meetings with council members, you know, like, what's up with all the emails? <laughs> These CrossFitters are crazy. And, it, you know, it's true. You know, we, um, I think our biggest strength as a company is our community, but it's also our biggest strength as, as a um, advocacy entity. You know, that is, we can, we can mobilize and leverage our community, and, and they themselves are very aware and passionate about these issues. So if we just say, hey, these are the people you need to talk to, they, they take care of it and they get it done, and that's exactly what happened. Um, the D.C. City Council realized that um, this law that they had passed was um, extremely unpopular, and uh, they decided not to implement it, and effectively it's just, um, it's actually, funny enough, it's on the books still, but uh, it's not been implemented at all, which is ideal. Yeah. Well, that's great. So just to walk kind of <laughs> yeah. through how occupational licensing might might have worked or will work or yes. work into the future, talk to us about how your competitors, in a sense, get the ears of the state legislators and regulators and what, how that turns into legislation that would restrict CrossFit affiliates. Yes. So... Um, when I, I should clarify who we're talking about, what organizations. And, and the two main ones are uh, the NSCA, the National Strength and Conditioning Association, and the American College of Sports Medicine. And they, along with four or five other um, bodies that certi also certify fitness trainers, form something called uh, CREP, or CREP, uh, the Coalition for the Registration of Exercise Professionals. And that's sort of an advocacy organization that they use. Since they're nonprofits, right, so there's a limit on how much nonprofits can lobby, but if they create, uh, I forget if it's a 501c4 or c C6, but if they create a, a separate organization, then that can do their dirty work, as it were. So um, specifically in um, D.C., the D.C. bill actually started going before that organization existed, but we know that the D.C. legislative uh, legislators and regulators met with members of our competitors many times in both the drafting of the legislation and then actually what we come to learn is that everyone thinks about laws but regulations are really where the, the dirty stuff happens. I keep saying the word dirty but it is dirty <laughs> you know so I guess it's appropriate yeah you know legislation you know this isn't the way it's supposed to happen by the Constitution but the way it happens in reality is legislation is often passed that gives government a broad directive to accomplish a particular objective and some guidance on how it's supposed to happen. But the re at the regulatory level, that's really where the details of how things are implemented gets decided. And, and there will be, you know, very long pieces of regulation that are responsible for implementing the legislation. I say all that to say... Our competitors are meeting with both uh, the politicians in D.C. and the regulators to influence how this law would come about. And the way that affects our gyms is, um, you know, the central question is, what do you need, what credential do you need to legally practice um, fitness training in the district? And do we accept, for example, the CrossFit L1? or do we require the NSCA or ACSM certification? And um, you can imagine what the NSCA and ACSM think <laughs> should be required, and you can also imagine why we would object to that, right? You know, so if, hypothetically, if a licensure law were to pass, 
um, that required um, the accreditation of the NCCA. Uh, NCCA is a is a body that basically says, "Hey, this certification is legit." If if such a law were to pass, CrossFit's uh, CrossFit credentialed trainers would no longer be able to legally practice because our courses are all accredited by a a different but just as respected if not more so organization called the American National Standards Institute. So um, this is you know it kind of seems all abstract and hypothetical, but this organization that I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, CREP, um, they will send um, sample legislation, you know, uh, to uh, states like Georgia, for example, with. And, um, you know, for people who don't know, oftentimes um, advocacy groups are the ones actually writing the laws. And then, you know, the politicians just sign off on them. So, you know, CREP tried to do something like that in Georgia. You know, we acquired a copy of what they were trying to pass. And uh, not only would it have excluded our trainers, you know, our credentialed trainers, because it would not have included our certifications and certificate courses as acceptable credentials, but... It made um, it made it a misdemeanor to practice unlicensed fitness training, and then I looked at in the Georgia uh, state code what the punishment for that would be, and it would be, uh, if I remember correctly, it would it was up to a year in jail and a five up to a five thousand dollar fine. Wow. Yeah. So literally, had this gone into effect, we would have had a situation where the police could be arresting someone in the park for teaching a group of people how to squat. And you could go to jail for that. Good use of police power. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this sounds ridiculous, right? Like, when, uh-huh. I, when I tell people this, they don't believe me. I, I, you know, e- even people who are inclined to believe, you know, like, that the government's out to get them, they don't believe me when I tell them this. They're like, you're exaggerating, Russ. But, you know, something happened this year that proves I was not exaggerating, not even a little bit. And that is a CrossFit trainer in the state of Florida, named Heather uh, Del Castillo, started a nutrition practice through a website, but she did not have a state license to uh, practice as a nutritionist or a dietitian in the state of Florida. So she was basically, she was, she was sort of in the paleo vein, mm-hmm. right? Um, she was doing nutrition consulting for people who wanted to improve their general health by you know cutting out things like processed foods, uh, soda, um, fast food, you know, things that we should all agree on that are good. And, you know, we have this huge diabetes and heart disease and cancer problem in the United States, all of it related to nutrition. So, you know, theoretically, we should be encouraging the spread of this as much as possible. But what happened to Heather Del Castillo, who, again, is a CrossFit coach, um, she was the victim of a sting operation by the government of Florida. Now, get this. The government of Florida thinks it's a good use of taxpayer dollars to have undercover government operators going after, you know, women like Heather Del Castillo who are just giving nutritional advice. So what happened to her is a guy using a fake name sent her an email saying he wanted nutritional advice. She said, okay, here are my services. And um, turned out he was not who he said he was. He was working for the state of, of Florida. And she was fined about $750 and told that if she kept doing what she was doing, she could face jail time. Right? So, I mean, this is, a, this is exactly what we thought was going to... 
what could have happened in fitness Mm -hmm. happening to one of our CrossFit level two trainers in the state of Florida, but in, in a related field, nutrition. Um, so she's currently being represented, uh, by the Institute for justice. She's suing the state of Florida. Okay, good. And, uh, I think based on precedent, I'm I'm pretty optimistic about her outcome. And I also think that the CrossFit community, uh, once it hears about her case, is going to be very sympathetic to it. You know, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, they're a very powerful force when they want to be. We'll make sure to include in the show notes uh, information about the case, including links to the IJ's website yes. and stuff. Yeah. Wow. So Georgia is yeah. one example of an attempt by your competitors to restrict the fitness industry to themselves. Yes. Um, failure? Yes. Didn't, didn't even get out of committee. Okay. Yeah. Do you see success because they have not implemented the regulations? Well, sorry, let me clarify. In Georgia, it was a success for us, failure for them. Right. Right. (laughs) D.C., success for us, failure for them. So you're seeing a pattern here. Florida, hopefully, will be a success for us, failure for them, but we don't know yet. And are there attempts in other states to do the same? Yes. Um, Since about 2006, 2007, there have been over uh, 20 such bills to, to create some sort of license requirement for fitness trainers. Um, when it comes to nutritional licensure, those laws are already on the books mm-hmm. in about 40 states of varying degrees of severity, though. So, you know, there are some states that just say, hey, if you want to call yourself a nutritionist or a dietitian, you need a license. So that's sort of less intrusive, right? It's just about the title. But then there are other states, like Florida, that are that regulate the practice of being a nutritionist and giving nutritional care. And, I mean, that's a real issue. So, you know, if you're a trainer out there and you're thinking, can I give nutritional advice to my clients, um, it's going to depend very much on what state you're in and what those laws are and how they're enforced. You know, so I can't give broad brushstrokes advice to all, you know, American fitness trainers out there. But, um... I should, I should also mention a, a commonality between the fitness trainer licensure and the nutritional licensure is the role of the food and beverage industry. That is, the groups advocating uh, most strongly for um, fitness licensure are sponsored by the food and beverage industry in one form or another, and so are so is the Academy for Nutrition and Dietetics, which is the group that lobbied for all the fitness licensure laws. You know, so Coca-Cola, Pepsi, uh, Kellogg's, you know, variously sponsored these uh, different, you know, they're organizations that sound amazing when you just hear their names. It's the American College of Sports Medicine, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. You know, how could you object to such a thing? They're nonprofit organizations. They're just trying to protect the consumer with these licensure laws so that they, the experts, can bestow upon us, the unknowing public, their... um, esteem knowledge and just really make us all healthier and happier right you know that's the impression they like (laughs) but that's not at all what's going on because look if you really cared about lung cancer would you take money from rj reynolds no from marlboro no no you know i'm not saying that it should be illegal for these people to take money from them i'm saying it it's immoral for them to do so explain why these organizations that are pushing for regulation of the fitness industry yeah. are being funded by, supported by food manufacturers such as Coca-Cola and Pepsi. Right. Why, why is Coke and Pepsi interested in licensure of 
fitness people. Okay. Two main reasons. One, um, and these are my, I should say, this is my interpretation. We're venturing into <coughs> op-ed territory. <laughs> right, but I, I think the food and beverage industry has two main interests in regulating fitness and nutrition. Number one is to regulate uh, freedom of speech or to limit freedom of speech. That is, they want to be able to say, um, these are the people who can talk, give advice about food and nutrition, and these are the people who can't. And they're doing this not just in the United States, but in Australia, South Africa, mm -hmm. all over the world. And every, t every time, every single frickin' time, we see someone who got in trouble for nutritional advice, here's the pattern. They were advising patients to cut down on processed carbohydrates and sugar, and the people who went after them had some sort of link to a food and beverage industry proxy group. You know, so what is Coca-Cola's interest in restricting the amount of people who can talk about sugar? I think okay. that's pretty obvious, yeah, right? Yeah, makes sense. Okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. because they want only licensed nutritionists who have been indoctrinated into this particular belief system about nutrition that it's only calories matter or... Um, moderation. Yeah, yeah, moderation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that, that it's not, you know... It's not about cutting out sugar and processed foods from your diet, but but rather you know just making sure you go for a light jog before before you have your you know can of Coca Cola something like that, right? Um, <laughs> the, so so uh, the first interest the food and beverage industry has in this regulation, as I said, is uh, limiting who can speak and what okay. they can say. Okay. Second interest. Um, the biggest problem in our country and world today, by far, that no one's talking about is chronic disease. It kills 88% of Americans, according to the World Health Organization. 88%, that's like, what, 2.2, 2.3 million Americans every year are dying from entirely preventable diseases that are all related to the decisions they make about what they consume and how or if they move, right? So what are we talking about? Heart disease is the biggest one, but diabetes is a huge one up there. Most people don't realize this. Everyone thinks of cancer as this sort of thing that just sort of happens to you by accident. But it's very related to your lifestyle decisions. You know, obviously smoking, we all know about that, drinking as well. But also, you know, things like how much sugar do you consume? Are you active? You know, what's your body fat percentage? All of these things affect your cancer risk. Um, so where the interest of the food and beverage industry lies is they don't want to be blamed for these problems. Right? They want to say, hey, it's not our products, it's the cons either the consumer for not uh, consuming them in moderation, or it's actually a lack, this is their favorite narrative, it's a lack of exercise. Right? It's not that they're drinking 40 ounces of Coca-Cola every day, it's that they didn't run the 10 miles or however much it takes to burn it off. And... Um, you know, they've been caught so many times doing this and they'll never stop because, <laughs> because the moment that they admit that their products are specifically toxic, not just a source of calories, but, a, a, but that 500 calories from Fritos and Coca-Cola is not good for you and, and has distinct physiological impact from an equivalent amount of calories, 500 calories from salmon, broccoli, and almonds, the moment they admit that, there are a whole lot of repercussions, both in terms of their sales and in terms of lawsuits, you know, like what happened to Big Tobacco, 
and in terms of uh, regulation. That's what they're worried about. So they want, again, how this comes into CrossFit is the way the food and beverage industry fights against uh, them being, fights against anyone realizing the impact that their products are having on this nation's health is they try to turn all the attention to obesity and physical inactivity. Those are the two things they want to talk about. They don't want to talk about diabetes. They don't want to talk about Coca-Cola affecting blood sugar and insulin. They want to talk about obesity and inactivity. So how do they encourage people to, to focus on their obesity and inactivity paradigm? Well, they've got things like exercise is medicine, which is founded by Coca-Cola and the American College of Sports Medicine in 2007. And um, what they're trying to do is integrate the fitness industry into healthcare. In other words, um, making the fitness industry essentially a part of the healthcare apparatus in America. So, you know, the fitness industry is actually, in my opinion, especially through CrossFit and, you know, other related enterprises, uh, been pretty successful in the past 10, 15 years of getting more Americans healthier. Uh, the healthcare is acknowledged by pretty much every single person with a working brain. American healthcare system is acknowledged to be in an utter and complete failure. It, it dramatically it, oh, is too expensive and it underperforms in all markers of health. You know, pretty much, we, we you know, the right and the left, they disagree about, they disagree about why that happens, mm-hmm. but they don't disagree that it's a complete and utter failure, for the most part, unless, you know, they're being paid to represent the interests of the healthcare industry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what would that look like in practice? That would look like in practice that you go to your doctor and he's going to tell you you're overweight, you need to exercise more, I'm going to write you a script to go to an exercises medicine, uh, you know, American College Sport, of Sports Medicine uh, certified trainer, and that trainer is going to then um, be paid by your insurance company, and he's going to be allowed to only give particular exercise advice and essentially give almost no real nutritional advice, right? So, so it's a restriction of speech again. But it's also focusing entirely on the physical activity side, not on the nu- nutritional side. So yeah. are you against the fact that there, that within the conventional medical system, as it's now organized, uh, and as you pointed out, organized so poorly that it's kind of in, not only ineffective, it's counter-effective to improving health and well-being of human beings? 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that with, it's the, your problem is that within that system, bringing in fitness into that system is the problem. But if we had a system which promoted optimal health, was not managed by special interests, including the federal government, would you be opposed to a doctor saying to a patient, not that you have to go see an AC, what was it, a certified? American College of Sports Medicine certified. American College of Sports Medicine certified person, but you need to go see a a fitness person because fitness is part of the regime as a doctor, I think you should do, as well as nutrition and sleep and stress management and all those other kind of right. things. It, w- what is your problem with that system? Is well, you're talking about a voluntary. Voluntary, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Voluntary, fine. Okay. My issue is with the federal government picking winners and losers in the fitness okay. industry. These certifications count. These okay. 
these ones don't for reimbursement okay. and regulating the practice of it, right? Got Saying it. that okay. you have to follow this particular nutritional paradigm and you have to follow this particular fitness paradigm. Okay. Because we know what that's going to look like, right? It's going to look like what the we food have pyramid yeah. and it's going to look mm -hmm. like 30 minutes of moderate intensity exercise, which nobody can accurately define you know, five days a week, <laughs> yeah. right? That's what, it, and it's not going to work for anybody. So you're not saying that, that fitness doesn't have a role to play in healthcare, promoting optimal physical functioning. What you're saying is that any kind of coercion and collusion between private sector and the government, picking yes. winners and losers is your problem. Re yeah, there's something called regulatory capture. Yeah. Okay. And um, okay. this... Is, you know, a lot of people don't even realize that this happens, but it, essentially, very often, especially in the United States, for some peculiar reason, the bodies that are supposed to be regulating an industry are captured by that industry itself. Mm -hmm. That is, you know, the EPA is heavily influenced by companies uh, such as uh, Monsanto, for example. The uh, CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, is very heavily influenced by Coca-Cola. Which is a good segue yeah. to <laughs> some of your concerns, and you've written a lot about, and I, I want to include in the show notes some of the articles you've written. Yes. Um, this collusion between the private sector and the regulatory agencies and the negative effects it has on the totality of our health. So do speak yeah, to that. Yeah, but before we get to that, I want to, I want to say why this matters. Okay. Regulatory capture matters because even the most well-intentioned policies that seem like they're going to increase the health of Americans and increase their access to fitness and health care, if they are implemented by agencies that are controlled by the industry that's creating the problem, they're never going to work. They're going to have unintended consequences. <clears throat> right? um, so examples, that's essentially what you're asking me. Yeah. Like how, how has regulatory capture happened? Um, I'm going to focus on public health because that's what I know the most about. And uh, HHS, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, is sort of the umbrella organization for other agencies such as CDC and NIH, the National Institutes for Health. And um, what's happened is both CDC and NIH have engaged in uh, what Coca-Cola describes as uh, partnerships. And, you know, it, it might seem funny to people that Coca-Cola and, and Pepsi can send money to CDC and NIH uh, for them to create policy or do research. But the way they've sort of gotten around this is they set up this money these money laundering organizations. And uh, instead of Coca-Cola paying the CDC or NIH directly, the CDC and NIH have uh, things called the NIH Foundation and the CDC Foundation, which are technically not government entities mm -hmm. and also not bound by the same conflict of interest policies as their parent NIH and CDC, wow. right? So Coca-Cola yeah. couldn't just write a check for, you know, I don't know, $6 million and send it to the CDC and say, hey, go study what's causing obesity, wink, wink, right? <laughs> but, but they can give, you know, you know, a million dollars to the CDC Foundation, which can then give it to the CDC. And we're supposed to think that's okay, because they've gone through this pass-through right, right. organization, right? right. Um, <clears throat> now, even though they've created this pass-through organization, I must mention that it's still violating their own policy. That is, the CDC Foundation's uh, conflict of interest policy says that they can't take money from companies whose products are um, exacerbate morbidity. 
right? It specifically says they can't take money from companies whose uh, products are essentially bad for you, increase the risk of death, of untimely death, right? Um, but they do. So they're violating their own policy, and it's black and white, and I've pointed this out to politicians, members of the media, and I think people are just, I mean, this might be, if, if you live in Kansas, this might be hard for you to understand, but finding cases of government corruption in D.C. doesn't guarantee a news story. It doesn't even guarantee a <laughs> blog post or a tweet. <laughs> like, this is stuff that's happening on a daily basis, on an hourly basis in D.C., so it's kind of hard to get people's attention. But still, nonetheless, I want to point out that the CDC Foundation is violating its own stated policy and taking money from Coca-Cola. That's an important point. Now, if you ask them about it, they're going to tell you, hey, we have conflict of interest policies in place, and we make sure that that the money we take from Coca-Cola, our partnership with Coca-Cola, does not affect our actual policy and research. Now, if you believe that, I've got some emails to tell you about. A <laughs> <laughs> um, group called U.S. Right to Know, led by Gary Ruskin, uh, found some emails. I don't remember exactly how they found them, but, you know, Gary's crafty. And... Uh, <laughs> What it showed was a very high-placed uh, CDC official, you know, working, of course, in chronic disease prevention, named Barbara Bowman, emailing back and forth with uh, the International Life Sciences Institute on how they were going to lobby the World Health Organization to stop talking about sugar so damn much. You know, so we've got a CDC official advising a Coca-Cola proxy organization on lobbying another public health issue. And, it, and again, if this sounds okay to you, just imagine if the World Health Organization was trying to crack down on uh, tobacco use by minors and the CDC was helping uh, Marlboro lobby against it. And so anyway, these emails came out. She resigned shortly thereafter, denied that anything untoward had happened, but... Um, Cases like this are still going on to this day, where we have CDC officials with just ridiculous conflicts of interest uh, with uh, either industry money directly or industry proxy organizations. Has the uh, CDC IG ever done an investigation into any of this that you're familiar with? Uh, to my knowledge, no, but there was an internal CDC ethical complaint uh, last year. 13 mm -hmm. CDC scientists... Um, said that uh, unethical behavior at CDC had become the norm. That is, it was no longer this thing that happened <clears throat> once in a while. It's happening all the time. CDC, if prominent CDC officials have irregular relationships with Coca-Cola. They're getting away with things that non-Coca-Cola people could never get away with. And, this is the key part, they're, this, the CDC misrepresented data on its heart disease prevention program to Congress then did an internal investigation to figure out how it happened, and then covered up the internal investigation. Oh, my God. Why does this not surprise me? Yeah. Now, you've chronicled a lot of this that yes. we've been talking about in your blog. Yes. What's the address for your blog? TheRussells.CrossFit.com. So, the Russells R-U-S-S-E-L-L-S, dot CrossFit.com. And CrossFit has its own website as well that people can visit? CrossFit.com, yes. Pretty easy. Yes. Well, Russ, uh, you're obviously doing amazing work. Congratulations on the uh, D.C. and the Georgia victories. And bringing to light to the American public uh, some of these, um, the collusion 
between industry and government uh, regulatory agencies. And from your, from our lips to God's ears, uh, <laughs> let's hope uh, somewhere down the road the policy, the federal policy on that changes. We have more transparency and uh, better policy coming out of Washington. That part I'm less uh, <laughs> saying what about, but we got to keep fighting the fight, right? Yeah, well, you know, at, at the very least, we can maintain the status quo <laughs> if, we can't, if we can't improve things. Well, and I, I want to mention before you go, Mike, you know, when I first came to D.C. two years ago, you were, the first, you were one of the first people, if not the first person, to take me seriously and meet with me and hear me out, you know, and uh, I appreciate that. So thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Well, great talking to you, Ross.